of all the events in 2020, one that has spurred positive action and will hopefully catalyze meaningful change has been the protests and demonstrations related to Black Lives Matter. Psychological science has a great deal to tell us about racism and discrimination in our society. This includes studies of the pernicious nature of systematic biases in the workplace, in our legal system, and across cultures. This is Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex. To help us explore these issues, I have with me social psychologist and cultural diversity scholar Dr. James Jones with the University of Delaware. I'm James Jones. I'm an emeritus professor at the University of Delaware and continue as director of their Center for the Study of Diversity. I'm a longtime social psychologist who's been writing about race my whole career. Well, the careers can last a long time. So I start mm-hmm. with just asking, how has the field changed from the time you started your career? Were there any obstacles and what did you do to overcome them? Well, um, it's funny, as I think about it, I started my career postgraduate school in 1970, 50 years ago, literally this year. And uh, the, as I reflect back on it, the decade of the 60s uh, instilled or installed many of the issues that we are currently addressing, and I think is basis for our discussion. The, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Immigration Act, all of them changed the landscape of the country. And for many, we thought it was a watershed and we were moving into new, new terrain. There was the women's movement, the youth student movement, uh, black power. I think in many respects, that time presaged Black Lives Matter. There was a, a recognition that even with the gains made through the legislative process, things were not necessarily better, or at least they were not relatively better. And uh, I think by the end of the decade, Blacks in particular, but I think all groups, were beginning to recognize that there was a need to take things into account, take, take their own action to achieve a kind of recognition and human agency and hum- humanity and not expect that the government political leaders were. So I think that activism became a hallmark of what came, uh, what we're in now. Uh, I started writing uh, Prejudice and Racism in 1970. It was published in 1972. And one of the things that I wrote about then was the idea that racial prejudice is important, but racism is something a little bit different. And I talked about individual, institutional, and cultural racism, which when you put it together, really defines what I think we now call systemic racism. I took the liberty of going back and looking at by decade that had prejudice or racism in the titles. And in the decade of the 60s, racism appeared in five articles and prejudice appeared in 139. In um, the decade that we're just ending, 2010 to 2020, 1,168 articles appeared on racism, and 1,535 appeared 
on uh, in the titles on prejudice. So I, this I did have a question. What what exactly did mm-hmm. you mean by that? And, and where were the, where were, did you find these titles? Were they in uh, in journal articles? I did a psych info search, and uh, I, I most of them were, were journal articles. There were a couple of book chapters and so on, but uh, I just did an omnibus search. Just I was just curious. I didn't know. I just was curious as to how that happened because when I began writing in 1970. I was, I was asked to write a book about prejudice and I sat down to write it and I was thinking about institutional racism and about the riots and about what was going on in the country and in the universities and prejudice wasn't getting it for me. It, it wasn't where I thought the important dynamic was. And I thought that um, one of the things that was most significant to me was the idea that Many of the obstacles existed in the form of cultural prescriptions, cultural preferences, cultural values, and that there was an entire cultural edifice that sustained uh, racial dehumanization and discrimination, and that those cultural values and beliefs were infused in the institutions that evolved in our culture and that individuals at the end of it were psychologically, cognitively, emotionally shaped by those macro level, higher order processes, both institutional practices and policies and preferences. So that was what I thought really needed to be addressed. And so in in a way I was uh, becoming a cultural psychologist without necessarily thinking of myself or even the field of cultural psychology. I was in the uh, social psychology that spawned cognitive dissonance and attitude change and uh, very micro level cognitive processes and their concomitant emotional processes. So it was a it was a very different time. The obstacle for me, given what I was interested in, was Uh, becoming an experimental social psychologist. At the time, experimental social psychology was two by twos, predicting interactions, and we're doing fancy, clever uh, experiments with a lot of deception, and and we tackled issues uh, with elegance, I would say, but but they they didn't get at the things I was interested in and, and concerned with. And to, to give a small anecdote, uh, when I was in graduate school, one of my colleagues opined one day that we're not interested in people, we're interested in variables. And uh, he further noted that race was not a variable. And that's a very uh, hardcore positivist idea about science and variables and predictive power of, of theories and so on. And it just didn't get to where I was. And and I thought that for me, I had to write about it, talk about it, think about it in a different way. So I I became a person who wrote about race, not a person who necessarily researched it at the time. You brought up the term systemic racism, and that is the the current label that marks the perpetual racial inequality. How has, can, should psychological science address it well, I, mean, I think we have uh, addressed it in varying ways over many years. Uh, one of the things that really 
sort of emerged in the early was the observation and recognition that those overt measures of racial prejudice and racial discrimination and beliefs were were getting better, getting becoming more positive, but that they masked in some ways some of the animus that was out there. And we began to really look at more implicit ways in which racial bias was manifested and sustained. So now we have a very uh, rich, broad edifice of implicit cognition and ways in which uh, we subtly can look at the brain and uh, measure uh, tendencies that people are aware of themselves. So I think we have been attacking it in those sort of micro ways, but I think more and more, we're wanting to more directly at more systemic aspects. So some of the work of um, Jennifer Richardson and Maureen Craig, they looked at perceptions of economic disadvantage or discrimination and find that people have a gross misunderstanding of how unequal things are. Uh, I think that the variables, approaches that I think are most needed and important right now in psychological science are, I don't know if this is exhausted, but there are four things that I think about. Okay. One is uh, the fact that systemic racism is sustained by power differentials. People in power have the ability to shape what happens. Uh, Mitch McConnell is, is a shaper of things. Uh, he, he can prevent where necessary or promote where necessary and change the landscape. So power is really essential. And psychologists studied power over years, but the study of power was sort of the study of power per se. What is power as a concept? What is it as a psychological trait or characteristic? But I mentioned power as a mechanism, a lever that sustains white supremacy and produces institutional outcomes that uh, represent the racial inequality that, that we see. So I think that there's a lot that we can do to look at how power is acquired, how it's maintained, how it's exercised, how it's legitimated, and how does it impact the ways in which racial inequality uh, plays out. The second is historical understandings as psychological phenomena. My colleagues, Glenn Adams and his colleagues, Fia Salter and others, have studied uh, history and perceptions of history and knowledge about history, black history in particular, history of discrimination, and find that knowledge of that history has an important influence on how people perceive and understand and respond to contemporary events. Uh, I think history is very important. When I wrote Prejudice and Racism, I was, uh, history was very important element of it. I didn't feel that I could understand what was happening in 1970 without understanding how our history evolved to that point, both in terms of the society at large and in terms of the work that we do in psychological science. So historical understandings are important, but I think we need to think about history as a psychological phenomenon. How do people think about the past? How do they understand the past? How do they recruit ideas about the past to their current understanding of events that are going on in their own lives. So I think um, developing and building out a theory of the history 
the effect of history on psychological knowledge and perception and ultimately behavior is another area that we can uh, really develop. The third is one that's already very well developed, cultural psychology that Shinobu and Hazel Marcus and many others have really developed and refined. Uh, I think there's, uh, we, we has tended to be more about broad cultural characteristics and not as much about how does cultural knowledge influence the dynamics of intergroup relations or racial relations. And I think we can direct our cultural psychology concepts and methods and procedures to better understand how, how race is evolving in our society and how systematic and systemic inequalities are sustained by the cultural edifice of one group versus another. I think the, the fact is that I'll take Blacks as an example, they're immigrants as another example. The Black experience is fundamentally different from the white experience in this country. And those experiences over 400 years and generations create cultural differences that are meaningful. And they're not simply uh, organized around individualism, collectivism, or other features that we typically study, but they produce ideas about resilience and oppression and concepts like that. And how do I achieve my personal goals or how do we achieve our collective goals in this environment, in this context? So I think there's a lot we can learn from it and critical race theory I don't even want to call it the current administration, but the Trump administration has tried to stamp it out because it's subversive to their subversive ideas. And I think we as a, as a discipline and cultural psychology can really attack that. And we've done enough to have some very good ideas about how to, how to do that. And finally, the idea of context as a psychological phenomenon. I think context is important to everything we do. It certainly is the cornerstone of social psychology, but how does, what is context as a concept? How, how does context shape how people perceive the world and how, how does alterations of it uh, affect their beliefs? I, I, I know that we've done some interesting studies with the shooter paradigm and shown that you can change the context and people will come up with very different ideas about uh, uh, responses to potential threats and gun perceptions and so on. So I, those are four things that I think we can build out theoretically and empirically, and, and they would are useful tools for attacking questions and issues of systemic uh, racism. James, I think it would be fair to say that you're considered a pioneer as an advocate of underrepresented minorities in psychology. I'd like to know your views about how the field used to be, where it stands today, and its next steps. Well, um, I was director of the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Psychological Association from 1977 to 2005. So during that time, obviously, a lot of time passed, and the field did evolve in many ways. When I became director, um, one of the things I looked at was the percentage of ethnic and racial minorities who got PhDs. And the overall percentage was somewhere around 5.6%. In 1987, that number was 5.6%. Uh, 
unchanged. That's a decade, no change. By 1997, it began to move and was up to close to 15%. And the most recent earned doctorate survey of the National Science Foundation is 27.7%. So that to me is a, a, a significant change in the people and the care experiences of the people and the nature of the people who comprise psychological science. The question that I think is the important is that that diversity brings different experiences to the pursuit of psychological knowledge. Experiences are important not only as uh, hypothesis generators, if you will, and I think the field of psychological science is significantly and importantly changed when the diversity of experiences interact with training, theory, and research to generate a broader range of questions and a broader range of techniques and tools to address them. And I think we now are looking at systemic racism and saying, well, how can we do this? And uh, I think we have many good examples from people who come from different backgrounds who have different perspectives on the experience of being a target of racism or trying to combat it or having to address your own psychological needs in, a, in an environment that is hostile to you because of your race. I think that what we have learned and what is important is that when we understand better racial ethnic groups and their experiences and their attitudes and beliefs and behaviors, we have the potential of broadening not only who's involved in our science, but the analytical tools that uh, our science represents. So I think that the field is better because it's more diverse and our understanding is better and our capacity to make a difference that is important is, is greater. It, it sort of reminds me a little bit of the, the 30s uh, and the, uh, uh, the Holocaust and the immigration of uh, many uh, Eastern European Jews to this country, like Kurt Lewin and, and many others, who brought a desire of an emotional attachment to understanding how this happens. How could that happen and how do we prevent it? And I think we're in a moment like that now. And when people are beginning to understand that there is really a systemic problem that needs to be understood, addressed, and changed, how can we use our psychological knowledge to do that? And I think that's a real challenge, but it's also a tremendous opportunity to further grow our field. You shared earlier a concept about a book. This is Strangers in Their Own Land by sociologist Arlene Horschild, which discusses how difficult it is to overcome an empathy gap between liberal scholars like herself and conservatives, uh, particularly high school educated whites in Southern states who are increasingly poor. Unfortunately, similar gaps may exist today between the white majority and black Americans. Do you articulate these gaps and your thoughts on them? I gave a talk and, and published a piece in Perspectives on Psychological Science in which one of the things I talked about was how in the early 1800s, uh, they used to think that blacks and slaves were 
less susceptible to pain. And because they're less susceptible to pain, it was perfectly appropriate to put them in work positions that were dangerous, that potentially did have a painful outcome. And that perception that that the Black people did not experience pain the same as white people is still manifest in some recent research that shows an empathy gap about to what degree is this particular level of, of shock, say, painful to this person. And people will typically sit, judge that the pain experienced by Blacks is less than the pain experienced by whites. So that's often cited in, in the discussions of the empathy gap. I think the uh, problem with the empathy gap is that it, it derives from different experiences, as I suggested before, and reminds me of the idea of the categorical divide that Debbie Prentice and Dale Miller wrote about so, several years ago. And the idea that uh, when you have a variable or a concept or a distinctive characteristic that is perceived as so fundamentally different, you have a difficult time trying to think about ways in which you can bridge that, that gap. They call it the categorical divide. And race is certainly a kind of categorical divide. And so the empathy gap, I think, emerges from the idea that Blacks and whites are so fundamentally different. And that difference is not just a difference, uh, an essential difference, but it's a difference that has you and is hierarchicalized so that whites are different fundamentally and better. And I think that's really at the, the root of white supremacy and that we, we can perhaps get at that a little bit by studying ways in which race and how it affects judgments that are being made. For example, about when black people get killed by the police, number of whites will say, yeah, well, white people get killed by police every day and a false equivalency emerges that suggests that it's no different for blacks than it is for whites. So that's, that's, that's a real, real issue. And, and I think that's, that's a gap that uh, makes it hard for us to move beyond where, where we are right now. The gap is uh, based largely in experience and the fact that blacks have had a very different experience collectively often individually than whites do. And that I think uh, is so profound about George Floyd is that I think whites saw a manifestation of white supremacy and systemic racism play out before their eyes. And it woke them up to some extent. We'll see if it's, if, if it's sustainable, but it definitely created a, a, a different sense, a sensibility. And the fact is that that whites don't have an experience or understanding of what blacks experience. And that, that's the, the largest gap. And so you, they, they often will try to imagine what it's like, even prefacing with, well, I, I don't know what it's like to be black, but to the extent that they try, perspective taking is a way to bridge that categorical divide and understanding the knowledge of our history and the experiences of history and how it could possibly change the way you perceive a given situation would be a, a very important step to bridge. George Floyd is a modern day Emmett Till. Many whites don't know who Emmett Till was. Black people certainly know Emmett Till. He was an iconic 
figure of white supremacy and racism and all that's unequal and unfair in this society. And George Floyd is kind of a modern day version of that. And I think we're beginning to appreciate the fact that there is something very fundamental to the inequality that we see. And progress certainly has been made, but that progress is limited by the perpetuation of systemic processes that ensure that racial inequality will persist. And that's, that's where I think psychological science can step in and, and really change things. I, I've been very pessimistic about psychological science in a way because of the adherence to individuals of analysis. But the fact is that it's people who make judgments, it's people who make decisions, it's people who have power. So the more we understand about those individual psyches, the better we are able to anticipate the basis for their decision-making and the nature of uh, the consequences of their decision-making. A favorite cultural psychology truism is the psyche and culture make each other up. And I think there is an inextricability to culture and psyche. And that is what cultural psychology has attacked. And I think we in psychological science need to develop that further because it is an intertwined, interleaving uh, set of relationships that uh, make it very difficult to disentangle race from how the society operates as a whole. I have a final question, and this is based more on my experience in the engineering sciences. Many years ago, I interviewed John Pierce. He was the inventor of the first communication satellite, Telstar, and Mm -hmm. talked about the impact this had on the world. And his comment was, the greatest benefit was that nothing now could be hidden, that images could be transmitted across the globe. We're now in a similar situation where video is virtually everywhere, and we can see these elements of discrimination. Uh, The George Floyd murder was a particular example, if that had not been videoed, it wouldn't have had the same impact. So how do you see the maturation of this technology, the ability to be a witness? How has that affected the entire aspect of what you're talking about? And will it help in the next decade to come? Well, absolutely. It, it, it obviously makes a big difference when you can see it uh, live. You, you can see um, black bodies lying on the ground, know how they got there, know what happened to them, but it's not the same as seeing it happen to them at real time. I think one of the things it does is it escalates the sense. It spreads the knowledge quickly, and I think it contributes to the rapid rate of change. Uh, so w- whether you say marriage or Uh, Black Lives Matter. Just think about the polls that show 76% of people support Black Lives Matter post-Floyd and some very, very much smaller numbers supported before Floyd. That is a a direct consequence of the fact that this event was public, it was shared broadly, and it was able to influence the way people experienced and understood a very basic phenomenon that was not new, but was now newly understood. I think it contributes to the, the rapid rapid spread of knowledge and the rapid pace of change 
that that knowledge produces. And one of the challenges for psychological science is to keep up. Things change very, very quickly. I think one of our interesting challenges is to figure out how can we have a science that is flexible enough to predict change in short periods of time. We don't have that many longitudinal studies, but longitudinal studies where you look at kids who <laughs> from five years old and see what are they like when they're 40, you know, that's that have changed so much. So much has intervened. That used to be a really powerful, I mean, it still is an important methodology, but we need those micro level changes. We need to be able to say how the things change in not even a generation. We're talking about months, weeks, days, even. I think the, the relevance to racism and systemic racism of media is profound. And I think we find that Black filmmakers, Black media artists are really getting in because that is the way understanding is influenced. So everyone wants to get their story and storytelling is big and the media facilitates storytelling in a broad way. And I think the stories become important to generating theory, generating methodology, and generating research questions that we need to go in and tackle. Thank you very much for your time and your very interesting and thorough explanations of these topics. There's quite a bit here for me to think about, and I'm sure our listeners will very much enjoy this. I have been speaking with James Jones, who has been gracious enough to spend a little time this morning to talk about his research into racism, systemic racism, and underrepresented minorities and how they these issues uh, require and impact psychological science. James, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for inviting me, and I really enjoyed having a chance to talk with you and look forward to uh, all the good work that APITS and psychological science is going to do. 